ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Potential Paradigms, where we have deep conversations with individuals who are working on the cutting edge of new emerging paradigms in our now apocalyptic civilization. Today, I have the great pleasure of being with a good friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, Mihai Algiu, who is a psychotherapist, a psychonaut, somatic worker, and a spiritual seeker. Mihai, welcome. Thank you, Kenan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for uh, being here with us today. And so before we start, Mihai, I remember I met you five or six years ago. We met at a meditation retreat under the guidance of Francis Lucille, who was a non-dual teacher. And I remember very fondly what struck me about you was your intensity and also your honesty, that you were very honest about your process and what was going in and what your ideas and views were. So I appreciated your candidness. And then it's been, it's been pretty cool to check in with you every year, every couple of years and see where you are in your own process and also the, all the great work that you're doing. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your friendship. And I remember you in your quiet intensity, quiet <laughs> pursuit of something deep. Mm, yes. So hopefully we're going to dig into it today. And um, just for the viewers to give them a context of the deep terrain we're going to cover, I'm just going to read your bio and then we can start. So thank you, by the way, for sending me this abridged uh, biography. Mihai was born in Romania during the communist Soviet-controlled totalitarian regime, and that has been happening for several decades before he was born. At the age of 15, the political climate changed and Mihai took the opportunity to move to the Western world. Soon after that, Mihai started his spiritual journey at an early age. And during his path, he has been attracted to the teachings of Gurdjieff Ospensky, also known as the Fourth Way, Soto Zen, Vipassana Meditation, Ajay Shanti, David Hawkins, Tishnat Han, and Eckhart Tolle. More recently, he discovered the non-dual direct path under the guidance of Francis Lucille, Laura Lucille, Rupert Spira, and their respective lineages. Since the age of 33, Mihai discovered the possibility of helping others, processing their deep wounds and limited beliefs under the umbrella of shadow work, mankind project, and prison work. Mihai now specializes in psychosomatic modalities, illuminating the hidden areas of our subconscious from where the impulse to heal arises. He's now a psychotherapist who's combining a wide range of psychotherapeutical processes as well as awareness-based teaching tools into a new modality called the Circle of Being Somatic Shadow Work. He practices somatic psychotherapy with individuals, couples, as well as groups. Mihai is deeply attracted to nature and hot springs, and he also practices the art of archery and plays music, especially the drums. But more than ever, he's drawn and dedicated to the experiential study of consciousness and reality. So thanks, Mihai, once again, and uh, quite a stellar profile. So I'm excited to, to get into this and talk to you about some of these topics. Yeah, just a quick, uh, small adjustment here. So the, the regime changed at 15, and I still stay in Romania until about 24 and then also I'm a psychotherapist associate on the path of becoming fully licensed. That's important to be said. And uh, yeah, 
Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. So I was kind of curious to know, how was it being in a totalitarian regime? Well, you know, you're raised in that world, that world is normal. So that was normal to me just when that transition happened and especially moving to the West, I could see that I definitely uh, developed endurance and resilience and I was used to things being harder. Just what comes straight off the bat in my mind, the, the president of the time, in the night, he will turn off electricity to save money for the economy. In winter, he will turn off gas for stoves and pipes, so he will save money for the economy. There was not much food in stores. There were long lines. There was just a whole world that, that was natural to me. And you had to be strong and, and survive. And this transmission was, in, I got it from my father, from my grandfather. You have to be careful with authority. Anyway, so I, I did enjoy my childhood. I did enjoy my childhood. And uh, I think my parents did a good job to shelter me and protect me and love me the best they could in spite of really Orwellian world. And seeing more like the present time now, yeah, when there's a power shortage here, there's snow or something, it's cold, there's no water. People here are like whining and I'm like, oh, it's okay, it's no problem. It, you know, it's easy. This is no problem somehow. Nice, nice. Yeah, I like that, um, the resilience and strength that comes with it. Actually, something, because people, we're talking in America about communists and, and their utopian movies and all of that, dystopian movies. And so I, I can see there is, I can see more and more, especially last year or two, elements that, that they don't fit in my idea of democracy. And, uh, you know, so these elements, they were like the state imposes certain things and uh, subtle elements intervene and that's a very uh, smells very familiar to a totalitarian regime and i could see when i could see that i was like oh okay i know this uh, you guys don't know this and it's coming slowly but i, I know this <laughs> yeah that's very interesting i was actually wanting to ask you that if you thought that there were any parallels with a lot of stuff that's happening over the past two years, specifically with, with the vaccines and right now with the trucker protests and all that stuff. So it's, it's very interesting that you do, you can sniff it out and you see similarities. And something that I wonder is that people who are not exposed to this in the past, you know, historically speaking, or have forgotten what their ancestors had been through. You know, you just get slowly boiled in as the story of the, the frog in the hot water. If you slowly raise the temperature, the frog doesn't notice. Right. So anyways, yeah. Does that change your behavior in any way? Well, you know, the elements, is what was normal for me is that the, the government or the party is in control of everything. Education, medical system, censorship. There's absolute complete censorship. I had not much West information until I was about 16. Yeah. And then basically also you are powerless. Here it's not quite like that. It's not quite like that. So there are early stages and hopefully it doesn't go that far, but Basically, there's nothing you can do. Your parents were raised in that. I guess I was uh, raised and conditioned there and culturally conditioned there and also getting the subconscious energetic transmission of, of my parents. My behavior was set up in a certain way, which is not the usual Western individualistic freedom kind of setting. 
So I was already aligned with this. Be careful. Be careful with authority. Don't stir the boat. Don't stick out. Yeah, no, don't fight. Don't fight the system. Don't. That's that dangerous. And in the past, if one in Romania were to complain or gossip or something, you will be taken to some basements and tortured. Then you will be disappeared. And so my grandfather was into a kind of political camps and concentration political camps. So somehow I was this carried in, this carried in. So to me, the freedom and the Western world was like, oh, wow, it's, it's nice. It's nice. But, but deep down in the back of the mind, the, that initial setting is present. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not trusting authority was like given. Uh, it's almost like in DNA. Now, this is quite fascinating. And I, I want to dovetail this to also your spiritual journey that you started at a very early age. But I did want to want to say some of the themes that are happening in the U.S., although I haven't been in, you know, something similar to you. It, it's been very different back in uh, India and Pakistan. But there's a lot of like unrest with cryptocurrencies, for example, the monetary systems, the federal reserves, and there's a lot of people doing the same thing, trying to claim their sovereignty. And uh, a lot of that comes from reinvoking the memory of the way the migrations happened into the U.S. and the reasons for which the Constitution was written, which was property rights and freedom of speech and all those things. And people do feel that those are being threatened. And and the other aspect of that was with the vaccines. And it seems like we're in this, this period where one of these forces is going to take over the other one. Um, yeah. So do you think that this has informed your spiritual journey in any way? Yeah, well, I guess I started at an early age as a teenager where I was really not yet fully in life. But you know what I want to say about what you asked me is that I guess the initial philosophical system that I resonated with, brought in the West by Gurdjieff and Uspensky, somehow I fully resonated with it. And then I, I stayed with it, that system to explain our inner world and our external world, because there's a cosmology aspect to it. So I somehow it stayed with me and, and a lot of it is still stay with me now. It feels true. And this informs me how I looking at the world and humanity. And it might be a little gloomy, uh, but somehow it helps me, I guess, uh, travel lighter. And uh, so the, the, my understanding is that, which was from the fourth wave tradition, was that, well, all these things that are happening there, we are, we are complaining and we are shocked and uh, hor- horrified. How can this be? How can that be there? The children, the war, the money, the drugs, the, how can this be? And, and Gurdjieff was offering this thing like long before this stuff that's happening was like basically humanity as a whole is from the point of view of consciousness asleep. So all the wrongdoings and the, the, the terrible things are a natural outcome of a collective low level of consciousness. So then, of course, it is like that. Of course, there are all the money goes into wars and all the resources are. Uh, hurting the planet and all kind of wrongdoings, of course, like that because people overall are unconscious and asleep, and that's how it is here. And actually, part of these teachings was that humanity—you know—I hope they're wrong, but humanity as a whole doesn't wake up, doesn't become the whole humanity, and then it's like wonderful. 
and the honey and milk and the freedom and equality and medical for everybody. It's more like some select individuals, they are jumping out of this current going nowhere towards a mechanicality, asleep, unconsciousness, selfishness, ego. Jump out of that and go in the opposite direction towards awakening and healing. And But that's not at the global scale. And yeah, and also this idea that, that it's not a mistake. God or the source absolute didn't make a mistake that the things are like that and somehow there's something wrong and I need to change it. At some, some deep level, this is like the video game and the video game virtual reality was constructed for, for us. I mean, was constructed as a great opportunity to evolve, to change one's level of consciousness. So the focus is to focus on that rather than change the video game rooms and make it more friendly or more this or that. So that's my focus. This being said, you know, I agree with our teacher. It's like, hey, don't try to change the world. But if out of your own deep realization or awakening, I have some tendency, impulse to, I don't know, build solar in Africa or to be a psychotherapist or to, to do this, do it. But I do it not because... I want to change the world, but because this is uh, the best natural expression of Mihai as an instrumental source. Yeah, wow. I mean, you packed very, very deep themes there. And um, I myself don't have much certainty, but I resonate with what you were saying. And, um, you know, looking historically, as you were saying, I don't think such a perfect world has existed. During the pandemic, I have contemplated this quite a bit because of so many things that have come to bear, um, I think buried in our psyche, we are now in a period where things are just at the surface bubbling and we're being called. It seems like we're being called to address them and respond to them. And I feel like the best one can do, perhaps along the same lines that you were saying, is to respond. And our ability to respond depends on how much one knows oneself, how much one has evolved oneself. Uh, but at the same time, um, I feel like I don't know what what the answers are, uh, but but also not to worry about it. You know, uh, yeah. perhaps that analogy that you gave of the, of the video game or a, a divine play. Yeah. The only other thing that comes to mind is that I, I see in my own journey is that as we work on ourselves, our ability to to respond and engage with whatever is presented to us, no matter how horrible or how beautiful, we can only fully engage if we have dealt with our own inner fears, uh, because otherwise our life and our engagement is inhibited. And, um, you know, that does not feel good when, yeah. when we are inhibited and restricted. And uh, I liked one of the things that you were saying, which is a, which is a deep current, you know, when you were mentioning um, that when you were growing up, your parents and your grandparents told you perhaps to not rock the boat and uh, not challenge authority. And I feel like th that is that inhibitedness that suffocates us at a, at a deep level. And, um, you know, you always see that in the youth, in the teenagers. That's why I feel like they're inherently rebellious. Right. Yeah. We were trained to not challenge it directly, not to stick out to the authority. However, they were modeling, uh, going undercover, hiding and having an autonomous life as much as is possible, disregarding and ignoring the, the, the regime impositions, but undercover, hidden. 
So the idea not to, to, all right, take it and be a sheep. No, it was like, hey, don't stick out, but do your life undercover. It's kind of to be more strategic. More strategic. Yeah, I guess because if you have 50 years of this, people learn in, in communism. There's nothing you can do. We just need to go under, navigate, do the best we can. So yeah, maybe it's a limitation, lack of activism on my part. Um, but... You know, sometimes I talk to my mother, she's more plugged with what's happening in, in Europe and tells me all this. If you listen to media, there's all these terrible things happening all the time. And from one angle, being plugged into the media, it's almost activates trauma. Uh, and so one is in a chronic state of dysregulation, they call it. Like, ah, freaking out. So, ah, this is happening and this is happening. So um this is very tricky and i don't think it's innocent and um anyway my i was telling my mom mom you know terrible things have always been happening on this planet it's like every all the time everywhere so it's no news no news it's 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 what it is but yeah but staying plugged to this just one channel of this media and all these things that filling the mind consciousness space with uh, fears, worries, anxiety that plug into our, our own unprocessed fears and anxiety. So now instead of responding from the present, from presence, from being stable, we are all the time, I mean, we, most people are uh, in a state of freaking out as a, as a default state. So a little thing will kind of destabilize you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, I feel like that being presence, being being present, is one of the simplest things, but also very hard. Yeah, it's it's simple but not easy. And more and more, I learn in my journey that that's the that's all I have to do if I could just stay present and let myself allow myself to respond and allow everything to be just the way it is. Then naturally, things seem to take the best shape. You know, there is a natural intelligence. But more often than not, the mind wants to calculate and strategize and, um, you know, project the best outcomes. Yeah, I guess from state of uh, feeling unsafe, I guess the default setting for humanity is being unconscious or in a zombie uh, state or the setting of ignorance or ego, however we call it, where it's unsafe, incomplete. And there's a need to control, to get security, to attain, to get recognition and stuff. Yeah, and that's that's an uh, it's a stressful setting, basically, and it takes a lot of energy. And so, what you're talking about, you know, it sounds very good, like oh, just respond from being the presence, and things will unfold in the best possible way. That's that's very simple and true, but. It requires so much, I guess, inner work of awakening and deprogramming to, to be possible. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it can take a lifetime of work and if not more. And I think it's, it's tied, to, tried, tied to our identity of who we believe ourselves to be. You know, if one, one believes oneself to be a human, an organism, then it seems like one is always under threat. You know, you need food and you need shelter and all these things and... Anything that rocks the boat a little makes you vigilant and freak out. And then you are responding from that place. And I think we're going to dig into this about part of what the spiritual journey is all about. Yes.
And uh, one thing that came to my mind earlier, as, as we were talking, that one of the big things in the news right now is this kind of sort of war between what is free speech. I don't know if you've heard of this, this podcaster, very famous podcaster named Joe Rogan. And all all the attacks that are that are coming um, at him from Fox and CNN, and they, you know, one of the themes that they say is that he has a big audience and he doesn't do any due diligence. He just says whatever comes to his mind, and that's not good for people because he's not vetting. He's not a news source, and uh, that's quite fascinating because that's what's been happening with all the big media that who curates them you know who who checks them that if the news yeah. so what they're saying is um it's not people are listening by their own choice but it's not good for them so someone else the government gets to decide what is good for us and not and that is just extremely familiar yeah to what totalitarianism is all about <laughs> yeah yeah you know i must say that they don't have really a lot of interest in, in what's happening and then maybe I should have more, but I'm familiar with Joe Rogan a little bit. I like I like him, although I haven't listened to him a lot, and I'm somehow familiar with what you're saying. But yeah, that's definitely suspicious. I mean, it's beautiful that some charismatic, intelligent man is open-minded and bringing wealth of resources. That's awesome. That that's great. I like this, theoretically speaking, and it's it's suspicious the for for your own good. For your own good of the masses, uh, be careful who who you listen to. That that's I don't trust that. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, I was just highlighting the the interesting dilemmas we have. It just seems like certain things, like the old media, um, is either going to die, but before it's going to die, it's trying its best to fight uh, the new things. You know, the 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 freedom of expression in the form of podcasts and anybody being able to use technology to say and express themselves. So they, they, I think they feel really threatened and, um, but yeah, interesting time. So, so kind of moving on, um, what to you is the realization of truth or what to you is the, the spiritual process? What is it all about? Wow. <laughs> Giving you the easy question. I mean, piggybacking where you mentioned before about identity, I think a good way to enter this topic is question of identity. So from I entered, let's say, the spiritual seeking, spiritual searching as a really naive, idealistic young man. And this started to spark initially as a, I, was, I was becoming having existential fears about death and trying to find a solution to death, I remember. As a, and there was some sense there's something more than what we can see. Like in Matrix with Neo, there's something here that I'm missing, you know? And then I found something and something and something. And so this accelerated, this creek took me to a river and then I've been flowing with this river. It changed names, trying to attain enlightenment, to wake up, to uh, uh, reach Buddha nature, to uh, whatever, encounter truth, discover myself. Anyway, they say there is, there is a, saying that when you line up, when you go on the spiritual path, it's like lining up on a very long line. You know, in communism, this is a common metaphor because there was long lines, people lining up in the night before the shop opens. Yeah. So you're lining on the long line and you don't quite know what they are selling yet. You think you have some idea, but but kind of going through 
your question. The spiritual process, the way I, I, I understand it, it's kind of uh, twofold. The purposes of it, no matter what we say that it is, is that we are trying to, to feel okay, to feel happy, to feel at peace in the present. That's to feel content in the present. Nothing is missing. Full enjoyment of reality. So that seems to be the intention. Although people say something else, I want good karma points for another life, or I want to heal the world, or I want to attain to Buddhahood, whatever they say. I agree with our teacher Francis that what we all really want is okayness and peace. So there's the intention. And what seems to me, there are two types of work that needs to happen in order for us to have any chance at discovering and, and living for more inner peace. One part of the work is to kind of jumpstart. We are kind of asleep, asleep and lost in thoughts. And the veil, as they say in the Sufi, veiled by the, 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 the dreaming, um, imaginings, uh, thought, the mind feeling. So, and completely identified the sense of self identify with the movie. So, the first part of the work, or I mean, one aspect of the work is to somehow diminish the time we spend, we, we spend sleeping, being lost in thought and feeling and checked out. So, becoming more. This, all this uh, more present, more aware, more in the here and now, and less sucked into the mind feeling content. Also, as we go along with this process to be interested and discover what is it that is identified with thoughts and feelings? What is it that is aware right now? What, who am I? What am I? What is that which perceives? So this aspect of which leads to some transfer of sense of identity, usually, and, and also increase of peace. So instead of believing that I am the thoughts, I am the belief that I'm unworthy or unlovable, or there's something wrong with me. So the, instead of identifying with thoughts or beliefs or uh, reactions, stuff like that, the identity gradually transfers like shares in the company towards the, the aware presence. So somehow we take discover aware presence, take refuge in aware presence, then we rest as the aware presence. This makes life more enjoyable and there's a lot of diminishing of suffering. can go deeper with that. But then the other type of work, which I'm, I uh, noticed that it's important as well, is this work of deprogramming, deconditioning. Our divine instrument has been filled with stuff which is not true and so just the awakening work, the awakening toward true nature and awakening is not enough from my understanding and experience. And because there are so-called these vasanas or so-called habits of us having been asleep for so long and habits of our parents and society having been asleep and unconscious for so long. So one needs to clean up, you know, clean up ship. So within this cleaning up of the ship from awareness, also to address thoroughly this childhood imprints, you know, it's known even scientifically that quality of attention the child received in childhood, how the parents were, they influence a lot the, the sense of the ego and the person. So processing all of these hurts and wounds, deficiency, story identity, 
all of these lies that fill up the consciousness. So if these are strong and negative and afraid, actually that's hard to realize what we are. Yeah, so basically the process is to twofold. It can be done. You can start with one and then the other or start with the other and then go to the other one. So-called progressive path or direct path. But I feel both aspects, they are needed. Waking up and cleaning up. As you know, this guy, Ken Wilber, had this thing, waking up, growing up, and cleaning up. I think these are part of the spiritual process. In order to be uh, functional and to be in bad, to, to reap the, the benefit of our realization, so rather than some kind of hiding in some spiritual la-la land and uh, feeling like like or like head presence and but not being able to have good relationships or avoiding life and feeling bored flat or afraid of humanity and stuff like that yeah absolutely yeah thank you for sharing that it's very 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 deep actually and just to kind of highlight some of the things that you said i think you were saying to me what it was the two aspects of being and becoming and this is kind of something I've been noticing as well, that initially when I started, it was to to somehow transcend all my problems and my difficulties, my human life. And it was part of the quest was also like an egoic quest. It was that there is something I'm going to achieve and it's going to make me like kind of a superhero. And um, that dream was shattered at some point. And it continues to be shattered, but there, there was a major shift at some point where I recognized in some ways that it was about becoming more and more insignificant. You know, my ego was just was like, I don't have any place to stand on. It's just, I have to learn how to enjoy my insignificance. But also at the same time, uh, this is one of the challenge that I faced, which, which in your work is very obvious and we'll dig more into it is Part of my spiritual process was not allowing me to become better at being a fully expressed human, you know, being creative. Like one of the, if I had to summarize one quality that perhaps embodies a lot of other qualities is to be, to have creative expression. And I think that is necessary to, to really enjoy life. And that was just inhibited, even though I was having deep glimpses of the beingness of the true identity. Oh, I'm not human. You know, maybe I am everything. Maybe I am God. But that was not allowing me still to to be fully creative, creatively expressed. And that that is the second piece that I appreciate that you're highlighting. Not everybody highlights that. And that cleaning up and looking at the traumas and our history allows us to become fully empowered human beings. Yeah, you know what you said, Kenan, about being and becoming. Also, one of my uh, mentors and friends, uh, I had an interview with him. He, he asked me, or I know he asked me some other time, what were some of the back-end benefits that the ego was was juicing from your spiritual path? And so I could see that at the beginning stages, and these beginning stages can last for decades, I guess. Uh, there's this, okay, the, the path of, of becoming uh, and improving Mihai, improving uh, myself and, and uh, 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 perfecting and cultivating virtues and, uh, you know, becoming. There's a becoming all the time of becoming 
and there's a chasing of some spiritual carrot that keeps going like this. So as our teacher says, I resonate with that, that that's more like the path to the path. So when you're on these stages, there's the path to the path and the real path, the beginning of the path starts only when we are kind of stop becoming uh, and discover our true nature or that which is aware. Um, yeah, so we stop trying to improve the imagined ego personality. Uh, we stop trying to improve it or modify it or change it. So we are more like going with um, going for the for the self or for the true I. What is really what we mean I? Uh, but this being said. The other part, the deconditioning work, what happens, the problem is that even if we go, we go deep with this self-inquiry and uh, uh, we start to be able to have less thoughts and to recognize presence and to live as presence. However, we have decades of basically this conditioning. What it does in simple language is that we can't be authentic. It's hard to be authentic. It's hard to be oneself. Because we got early on, we were in a three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Many of us, I work with people for for many for years, every day a lot. Almost everybody, man, I'm telling you, almost everybody on a spiritual path or not, have some version of this. Uh, I can't say what I want. I can't put boundaries. I can't express this. I have to hide. I have to be good. I am bad. I'm, uh, I can't trust people. I can't trust myself. I, I don't know what I want. So there's the, the system, the body mind is totally messed up. <laughs> so now you get some recognition of presence together mixed with the messed up system. Um, and I think for most people, it doesn't just recognition of presence doesn't clean up and grow the ship right away. Maybe it happened like with Ramana or Meher Baba or Eckhart Tolle or few exceptions like that. But for most people, it's some kind of gradual, gradual thing. So I think it's possible to have recognition of Buddha nature, but still live a, a stunted, inauthentic life, trying to avoid stuff and not being fully expressed. And uh, I agree with you. I think part of, you know, if we, all this deconditioning, the, the caps we have, there are some caps or some systems of internal oppression and it's not safe to, to feel this. It's not safe to speak up. It's, I can't say and do whatever I want. So all of this, the natural expression of the Mihai is a flower of God. Needs to, so needs to be liberated from all of these things in order to, to shine, you know, to, to do what you want. As our teacher says, to follow your enthusiasm. People are, we are not encouraged to follow our heart's deepest desire. We have been programmed to be good, to not make mistakes. They would get a job and follow in line, you know? Yeah. No, beautiful, beautiful. Um, I, one of the things that you said was the, the lightness of, of being. I feel like the more we, connect with our beingness uh, of what we truly are 
And just as an analogy, uh, you know, in our time and age, it's easier to think about these things. You know, we can, we can always say, oh, we live inside a computer simulation. So in the computer simulation, there are just characters and I'm playing a character. So it's easy to understand what happens when you plug the simulation or you stop the simulation. I like the matrix, I get unplugged up the matrix. So we have all these beautiful analogies. But the more we disconnect from the simulation, I think it doesn't make the simulation pointless, right? To, to emphasize, oh, that I have to transcend my life and get out of this uh, seems to be pointless because the simulation was always a simulation. It's never not been a simulation, right? So our being here is, is not pointless, but from the highest standpoint, perhaps we are here by our own choice. And once one understands that uh, really deeply, then our life uh, becomes empowered. But as, as you were saying, it's, it's a gradual process. And I feel like the more you keep returning to the being, the more expressed you're becoming becomes, the more cre- it becomes an art project, a creative project. Yes. And then you can design your superhero avatar or your game construct if you want to be a poet or you want to be a therapist or a martial artist or, you know, spread love and joy everywhere. But it's, yeah, it's all very light. I, 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 I like that. I resonate with this. Um, the more we tune into the being that we are, tuning, connecting to it, resting as that, the more the avatar is more fully expressed. And, and also, it's not, I mean, my experience is not that I'm designing it. Okay, what I think Mihai should do. No, it's, it's the, some, that happens naturally. There is a, the, the enthusiasm is more like liberated from boredom or sense of it's not possible. And there's the, the deepest passion starts to bubble in. And so that is the unfolding of the what I'm supposed here to do. You know, this being said, this recipe, tune into being, and then the expression will unfold and follow suit. I don't think it happens to everybody. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of so-called bypassing, tuning into being and, and, and not coming, not embracing my life and all aspects of my life, relationships, uh, job, expression, creativity, fun, friends. Uh, so that, yeah, so. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think uh, spiritual bypass is something that I, I do want to get into a little later. I think that's a topic that we should, we should unpack. Um, but yeah, how you were saying that this process Apart from a few beings that we see, it's a, it's a gradual process. And I feel like even for the, the great beings, like when you look at their stories, uh, especially in the context of tradition, it is lifetimes, you know, sometimes they say it's like infinite lifetimes over and over. And then, then you, then you learn it's, it's very, very rare that there is an instant realization of your true nature. And after that instance, you become a so-called perfected being. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, uh, undoing conditioning, the more we undo conditioning, our body, mind, consciousness system reverts to its natural divine setting. So there lies the, Hey, my own tendencies and my own strength and my own ego to be free to, I don't know. They say that the universe even scientifically, it's constantly expanding, expanding, wants to expand. So we are part of the universe and the universe. And 
there's, there's expansion in my, my life. I don't know, expansion of, of wisdom, of creativity, of friends, of fun, music, of insights. Yeah, one thing uh, that came to me, which maybe we'll talk more about later as well, is this return to being. And I feel like, um, well, the Sufis call it, you know, in a way they call it fanat, the, the death, the death of the individuality into the universality. Yeah. And uh, surprisingly, it seems like there are many deaths that we have to go through. Um, if I had to be honest, I'm not sure when this process ends, but with each return into the being, because there is this incomprehensibility, right? You don't fully comprehend it, but you get it and then, then you return. But there is there is more to learn about the being, right? And then you return again, and it seems like there's it's like a spiral where you're going. Because early on, talking about egoic projection, I thought it was a one shot deal. I'm going to annihilate myself, and I'll get it. I'll get the download. Uh, but now it's like there's this new humil- humility of like perhaps even surrender to a spider-like process where the return is continuous. You return to becoming, you return to being, and then you return to becoming again. And uh, there is kind of like, at this moment, there's an okayness. You know, I try to remind myself, so what's wrong with that? It's totally fine. You just, you just enjoy the process. It's, it's, um, it's breathtaking and it's, it's beautiful. But sometimes it becomes, takes the shape of a little bit of a scary thing. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. I forgot to say uh, what my uh, imagined self or ego was getting from spirituality initially. I mean, I, I was sincere and honest and pursuing genuinely, uh, you know, but at the same time, there was this promise that, well, okay, if I get this awakening thing, then two benefits. First of all, I will be also like a superstar like a super special and will be spiritually super special and spiritually superior and perfect, which coincided with my uh, limiting belief core uh, pattern of I have to be perfect uh, to be safe or get love and approval. Anyway, so to be extra special. And there was also the premise of imperturbability. I was really resonating and wanted to reach this thing where they say that, that you are unaffected. You are unaffected by anything that happens that somehow all the masters are talking about that. I was like, hey, I, I want to get me some of that imperturbability. But unbeknownst to me, I could see that generation of men in my lineage being repressed and uh, avoiding and uh, surviving, not feeling and, and not feeling feelings. So I could see that out of this imperturbability, there was an attempt to not feel, not feel sad not feel shame, not feel anger, not feel grief, loss, and fear. So so uh, I can see now that the best teachers I had deconstructed some illusion, this this ritual illusion, you know? Even with Francis, he, he helped me. I was on this path of this kind of trying to be more aware and more conscious and more aware, like an effortful, you know, presence that you get from, you know, mindfulness, vipassana, uh, all this to be more in the now, more, you know, which is becoming and striving and attaining this presence, which is outside of myself. He really tried to, he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to cure you of that. And it took time to stop doing that, which initially seemed to be the highest path. Um, and other teachers, like even this, deconstructing the sense of the end of the road and uh, deconstructing the carrot. 
So how would our spiritual path look like if we deeply know that there's no carrot, there's nothing that I will attain, nothing special is going to happen, nobody's going to save me, and I still have these feelings, these feelings. So yeah, I don't know, it shifted a lot from trying to rock it out into some cyber spiritual space or transcending or separating myself from what was in my chest and belly to not avoiding this anymore. You know, it's facing my own pain, uh, facing feelings and uh, keeping it simple. I mean, Mihai, this brings up in me is, um, again, this idea of creativity and full expression. I think earlier you were saying that um, there is not somebody who's really trying to to be expressed, but it's a natural allowing uh, of that process. And I wonder a little bit about that because talking about limiting beliefs and our traumas is what inhibits our creativity, right? There is some kind of limiting belief that I cannot do something. But at yeah. the same time, these limiting beliefs also cloud uh, what we project that we want to do, right? The, yeah. the, the enthusiasm and creativity is not pure. It's kind of passing through a colored glass. Yeah. And I think that's when it takes, takes the shape of like jealousy and envy and, you know, hate and all, all those kind of uh, negative emotions. Yeah, and even that, the strong still condition, um, even what we seemingly want to express and bring to the world might not be the real thing. It might be a strategic thing. Oh, if only I write this book, I will finally be worthy of love. Yes. You know, it it may not come from the unabashed interest. Hey, I got to do this, man. I don't care about processing. I realized somebody asked me, hey, what are you into? Okay, I like music. I like tool. I like this, I like that, uh, but but and meditation and consciousness. But but what I really like, I like processing people, man, <laughs> and myself included. You know, going into the the inner world and kind of getting in there. That's what I like. It's a strange hobby to have. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it. One of the things I remember, I think it's in the in the Quran. There is a there is a line that how did God create the the universe, and it's very similar to biblical ideas as well. And the idea is God said be. It's, it's the word is kun. God said kun and it, it became. So there is no distance between, there is no linear thing, you know, where you're constructing something. The very idea of creating something comes into, into existence. And I feel like part of our spiritual journey is like that. It's like as the limiting beliefs and the lies fall away, the the act of our creativity becomes like that, right? It is just in a way instantaneous. Anyways, it's a subtle point, but I but I feel like that the feeling that we have that I can create or the feeling we have of autonomy, there is a truth to that ultimately. And it, it shows itself more and more. And that's when we start to become feeling more empowered as beings. And maybe that's what the end goal is, you know, once you, once you realize that you are the all omnipotent, then you have to restart the game. You have to reboot. Hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, let's get into one of the questions I wanted to ask you. So you were already touching non-duality, but I was curious to ask you, you know, in your journey, you said that you went through all these amazing teachers and more recently you discovered non-duality, which was a big shift for you. So I would like to ask you, uh, how do you define 
non-duality or how they call it in India, the Advaita Vedanta tradition. And how has that been uh, a big shift for you? Yeah, I was always resonating with this awareness-based teachings that were like they were maps towards some spiritual process, meaning rather than prayer or rather than mantra or rather than some physical practice to engage in some consciousness, awareness, kind of looking at certain things, exploring. So I was always resonate with this kind of stuff. And so this kind of awareness-based practices can be, you know, the fourth way can be Zen, Buddhism, can be Advaita Vedanta. But somehow when I started, I, I didn't have this non-duality umbrella. And so I understand non-duality, Advaita Vedanta, an ancient map, uh, an ancient map trying to point a spiritual uh, seeker on the right track to discover certain things and verify certain things within leading towards discovering the source of inner peace and happiness within. So what made a big difference is that even when I was doing this, I was doing this witnessing, trying to witness and be present, you know, Eckhart Tolle and be here, be here now and all of that and not go along with daydreaming and not go along with thoughts, some kind of extreme form of presence slash mindfulness as an effort. I didn't have the non-duality umbrella, so I thought that there's me I thought that this my personal limited, it was my personal consciousness, my personal witness that somehow, Mihai, I was doing this effort in order to reach this super personal consciousness now that, that then if I get it, then uh, it's, it's going to be wonderful, basically. But everything was in the umbrella of uninvestigated sense of personal personal, limited, uninvestigated me, whatever that was. And so this approach, this is going to not go very far. You know, it's one I was going to get stuck and not really get a lot of benefits. So what this direct path and more like higher version of more clear expression of Advaita Vedanta non-duality, it brought for me this peace that the that which is witnessing right now, that which is aware, and the presence in which you know the image of Kenan and the traffic outside. So this this presence is actually impersonal. It's not personal. It's not Mihai. It's kind of universal. And they were saying to today, don't believe this. That's not a belief. You don't need another belief. But but try to be open to the possibility. Challenge your assumptions that you have. Try to verify. Yeah, so the idea is that, as they say in the Quran, wherever your eye falls or whenever your ear hears or whatever, there is the face of Allah, face of God. So in the New Age cultures that, oh, like to oneness, connect to the oneness. But it's not so much to connect to oneness. There is oneness. There is oneness. And everything here from the mountain to Mihai and Kenan and, and the president and everything is an expression of one life, intelligent, divine energy. And uh, yeah, so that shifted my witnessing mindfulness practice done from a personal setting. And yeah, this, this peace and happiness we long for, it seems like comes via verifying more and more that we are, I am as far as you say, we are all flowers on the tree of life. And many, many flowers, but the same trunk 
or like waves on the ocean. The ego setting is like, hello, I'm, I'm a rogue wave. Something wrong with me as a wave. I'm missing love or something and I feel alone and separate wave. But actually it's an illusion. It's, it's actually a big illusion. It's more like the ocean. So this peace, nokeness, joy, love, somehow they come spontaneously through verifying that this stuff is true. They are not a separate wave and we are in a gut soup, basically. And it's the tree nourishes each flower. So I don't have to kind of try to control and manage my own existence because it's, it's taken care of. It's all taken care of. Yes. So how does that inform, actually, let's, let's, let's circle back a little bit and get into this again. How did you get into psychotherapy? Because I feel like there is definitely a deep connection with your spiritual quest to wanting to then help perhaps others. Yeah. You know, I didn't, in Romania, we didn't have psychotherapy. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know. I saw on TV and I, I thought that's bullshit, basically. I, I thought as a spiritual aspirant, I thought psychotherapy is bullshit for a long time. And at some point in my, my 30s, I, I, uh, after I'd been disillusioned by a certain spiritual group that turned out to be not as pure and helpful as I thought, I kind of left that spiritual community and I, I was more like distrustful of gurus and spiritual authorities and stuff. So I found this men's organization called Mankind Project. Mankind Project, I recommend to any man it's, uh, worldwide, and, but a lot in America where it was some kind of founded like 30 years ago by, by four people, like a, like a poetry professor, a psychotherapist, and a marine major or something. And they, they put together a training in the 70s, 80s, where like some kind of empowerment, some type of awakening of the man, some men's work. Not necessarily about Buddha nature and enlightenment, but more like facing the shadows and inner child work and integrity, accountability, a sense of mission and purpose, Robert Bly kind of stuff. So I went to circles like that after having been in enlightenment teachings for a long time. And initially I was feeling spiritually superior because they were not pursuing enlightenment and stuff or this self-remembering presence. But what I was impressed and touched about their high level of realness, authenticity, and getting into feelings and expressing them. And also they had certain technology where somebody was more charged or suffering or had some trigger. They would work with each other and they were not therapists. They would work with each other and go deeper and process it and uncover more things. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, it's wonderful. I, I like that. So I, I went the more and more and more and more different trainings, different things. And I started to embark on the path to become such a more skilled facilitator. I still didn't think much of therapy at all. So that was the beginning. Then I started to go into the, this mankind project. They start to do the same work in, in maximum security prisons. So I was lucky enough to, to get there, which was very transformative and heart uh, touching and then as i was doing that 
I, I, I had this thing to, to, to find a psychotherapeutic modality that resonates with my spiritual understanding. I don't know how I ended up to have this, but I want to study more. I want to study more. To, so I discovered this Hakomi, awareness-based somatic uh, psychotherapy, which I discovered it. And uh, I, I was like, oh, yeah. I could see it was based on this awareness, fourth way, Buddhist, Taoist principles, and was getting into the wounds. Basically, it was processing wounds, limiting beliefs, traumas, from a perspective, it's not just from the mind. So I, I went into that and I liked it. I still didn't think much of a therapist. So after doing four years of that, I was having all kinds of jobs I didn't like. At some point, I couldn't deal with it. So I got the entry job in mental health as a mental health worker dealing with very severely wounded, aggressive teenagers in a facility and which was really low paid and really dangerous in some way. But I loved it. I just loved it. And I could sit there, oh, therapist, what's that? Anyway, uh, long story short, I was like, hey, maybe I should become a therapist. So because I already felt like I knew the chops, all my spiritual understanding and all this dealing with hard intense demons from people in the trenches. It wasn't just book psychology and this Hakomi. So I I decided to, what is it that I need to do to enter the mental health system? So I realized it was actually not a very hard path. I already had a bachelor from when I was a kid. So I just need to a master's. I realized that I, I love this and I've been loving to do this all along. So that's the best use of me high and what I like the most to do. And somehow this, there was a big gap between my heart's passion, job, career, money. This was all disconnected. And I had the rejection toward job, career, money before. I thought that this is a distraction. But anyway, when my heart's passion, my inner child's passion and interest and my talents, they aligned with this, actually it started to work much better. It was much less misery because I'm not going to spend hours every day doing something I don't like. I'm spending many hours every day doing something I like. Yeah, that's that sounds wonderful. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is how was the prison work transformative? You were mentioning that it was really powerful for you. Yeah, it's interesting. We talked for about an hour and a half and I, I didn't feel a lot of things. When you mentioned how was prison work, I close my eyes, I see those guys and I feel like, touched and tears. Well, I guess uh, it was that surprisingly, I met there people that they were more real and authentic and open, interested to connect in the moment with me from a real uncontrived, no bullshit place somehow because their life was so hard there in Maximus Kiri prison, active gang yard. They would just come to this group, which was a select group of individuals that was very hard to get into that group as an inmate. You need to be vetted by inmates to be really trustworthy. So they had very little time. So I don't know, when I was there, it was touching how real they were and how present they were. They would ask me, hey, Mihai, how are you? And usually I was like, oh, you know, uh, bullshit. But I could see that it was shocking me that no, he really was looking at me and was interested how I am, what I've been doing last few days. What, you know, they were really open and real and also i don't know if you know this prison hug you come and you're like there's a whole thing like a prison hug <laughs> i don't know the, the the hugs from them were so subtle yet deeply meaningful like i would be touched 
Yeah. And the, and the work was, you know, I was already gave up this thing about enlightenment and stuff. Uh, so it was more like a human work of going into the pain and the limiting beliefs. And so there was already a, a type of work happening there, which was ex- happening before I came into the circle. Yeah. I think at the heart nourishment, man, and the realness, authenticity, brotherhood, unpretentiousness. Yeah. Yeah, in a way that that makes sense that the, you know, the situation, the, they have already been through these intense experiences. And I think when the, when that happens, there is kind of a realness, a rawness, because yeah. everything is kind of out there. There aren't those many facades or trying to, you know, not keep things real. So one time I went there, I was starting to, you can, before we do the circle uh, protocol, checking in and whatever. One can read something to to just some uplifting, whatever. So I started to bring Francis Lucille, you know, started to read there, Francis Lucille. And I remember that I read the page or two and a little bit tentative. I was like, man, I don't know how this will land on these guys. And I didn't want, I mean, I was so gung-ho on it and inspired. I wanted to share this with them. And also I was telling Francis about this and Francis was very good. He was saying, hey, don't teach what Francis says teach what you understood from Francis. Don't forget about Francis. (laughs) So anyway, I'll read two pages from Francis. And there was this guy, he's like, oh, that's some deep motherfucker right there. Can you read again, my brother? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Nice. This deep motherfucker is a high uh, respectable term. Yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> the the very real and raw. Awesome. So yeah, one one topic that I wanted to kind of touch with you on is um, spiritual bypass. Yeah. Right. And uh, my understanding of what spiritual bypass is, where you start using spiritual ideas or spiritual idealism in a way, which is not yet your experience, to to dismiss dealing with your own traumas or your deficiency stories, as you call them. Some suffering. Yeah, some suffering, to kind of hide your suffering. And that, in a way, is, the, is, is a form of ego, kind of an aversion to not let things that are hidden to come into the present, into the awareness. Yeah. And so I, I know that, the, that you deal with that in, in your work and also in your spiritual journey. So if it's possible, if you could address... What to you is spiritual bypass and how do you see it in in trauma work, in psychotherapy, but also how have you also seen it in your spiritual experience in your work? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, and like how you defined it, some kind of uh, attempt to, when there is some suffering, mental, somatic suffering in the body. I'm resorting to some uh, spiritual understanding or technique or deep pointer in order to somehow escape, transcend as soon as possible, escape, not feel, avoid this thing and go to higher ground. And, And this bypassing, like avoiding of suffering, you know, which is going to uh, make the suffering longer. It's a pitfall on the path. 
And as you said, it can be done, you know, I'll give you some example or more like, let's say, a simple level of new agey self-help kind of modalities that may encourage spiritual bypassing and going all the way to seekers of enlightenment and Ramana, lovers of Ramana teachings and stuff like that. So like some basic example is this thing with the law of attraction and, and cultivating being positive and being positive somehow in this idea that, oh, what you hold in mind is going to manifest. So be careful. Don't, don't, don't spend time feeling fear or this or that for too long because you are going to manifest. So let me right away shift into gratitude, shift into gratitude or shift into what is it? What's my, on my vision board? And I'm grateful. Thank you, God, for all of this. And somehow doing something to shift right away from a negative feeling into a positive feeling. A positive feeling. Yeah. So, or this kind of visualization to, to kind of manifest. Let's say I'm, I'm feeling unhappy and miserable. And I feel that I underneath, I might not even know that, but subconsciously I, I feel like I'm lovable. I, I don't deserve love and affection. And there's something wrong with me and I'm broken. These are there in the back of the mind. On top of that, I'm pursuing spirituality. I'm trying to have the law of attraction manifest, the ideal partner and the ideal company. So I'm now visualizing some, how would I feel if the ideal partner will, will meet me and then I'll finally be happy and how, you know, going into all of that. So this would be somehow not, not bringing present awareness, not 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 allowing this negative content, whatever, sadness, sense of unworthiness, loss, aloneness, fear, anxiety, somehow being afraid of it like hot potatoes and, and then trying to do something with it. And at a higher level, yeah, I feel that although non-duality from one angle, it's one of the highest teachings towards pointing towards what we are in a direct fashion and the nature of that. It has a strong, depending on the, the teacher and the lineage and what's happening there, it has a strong um, possibility, tendency to bypass. An example of non-dual bypassing is like, well, yeah, so I'm feeling something that's somehow unpleasant in the body. There's some sense of lack or something. So, yeah, I'm instructed to, to allow it, welcome it. But don't stay with it too long. That's also the welcoming can be a not true welcoming. So I'm doing this welcoming of this uh, sense of lack or unpleasant feeling. There might be the secret agenda to, to get rid of it by welcoming it because I don't want it. And then even if, if I welcome it completely, which is hard, it's hard because trauma and deeply seated stuff, they are not coming up. It is hidden. It only come only when you are very triggered or something. So... This thing that, hey, just rest this awareness and let things come and go. They come and they go and I'm the watcher of it. This is not real. This is an object in awareness. This is not me. Well, the deepest programs that create the deepest suffering, they don't come and go in meditation. There's not going to come too much in satsang, you know. And uh, there's a deep element of repression connected to trauma and the messages connected to trauma impact. So what we can do is that there is... This sense of, I, I often see in satsangs, and even with wonderful teachers that I still resonate with, something comes in the chest, or there's something in the chest, in the belly, and 
okay, welcome it, allow it. And then, you know, but, but know that you are not this and you are, you are the presence, which is aware of it. So why bother stay with what you are not and go back to what you really are and just go back to what you really are. And this will take care of everything. You know, that's the, some of the message we get. Um, so my experience is not quite like that. And that burning in my chest is not burning in my chest. It's a whole program. It's a whole maybe unprocessed trauma where it's also like thoughts there that says I, I, it's not safe to be myself because of this and because of that. So in these feelings and somatic unpleasantness, they are usually hidden thoughts that are not coming up just by letting it come and go. It needs more skillful, directed, pointed investigation, ego investigation, basically. So I, in spite of the great benefits of pursuing some of these direct path teachings, which were many benefits, at the same time, I would still not process what creates suffering. And then when something would come up, there would be like, oh, okay, well, this is here again. Okay, all right, well, let me welcome it. Let's just be the presence in which it appears. And then I'm not this. There's no me in this sensation. The sensation arises in me. But that was attachment when the attachment trauma, attachment, abandonment, rejection, they will come over and over and over until I face it. And actually, Francis was saying to us, me, like, hey, man, when somebody has come, let it devour you. Let it devour you. Let it eat you up. Yeah, I deeply resonate with that. However, this is not a good pointer for people who have PTSD and trauma and all of that because you can't let trauma devour you. You need to do it piece by piece within the window of tolerance. Otherwise, one gets re-traumatized, dysregulated. So I need to do a lot of more like stuff, focus on particular things in order to do what Francis was saying. So only after I got more into these killer inquiries and somatic processing, I could open those files piece by piece and let every thought and feeling about this be witnessed and face it rather than take the higher ground of being the aware witnessing. Right. Well, a lot comes because I've also been somewhat on the non-dual path. I mean, it's such a can of worms here. So maybe, maybe I'll, I'll share a few things that come to me. You know, the non, non-dual path is interesting. It's, it's a Western word. To me, what it, one thing that's surprising is every tradition on the planet is actually non-dual, whether it's Native American or it's Islam or it's the Indian pantheon of Kashmir Shaivism, Christianity. I mean, the non-duality is just, the, you know, the, the one spirit, the, the unity of being, the oneness. Yeah. The only difference is that I feel like in, in the West, it, you, you kind of start from there, like you are that, or you are God, you are that, the presence. And then quickly, when, when the bypass happens, it is at the expense of the traumas. When someone says they are that, it might actually not be an experience. And when it's not an experience, then it's something co-opted by the ego. And it's, it becomes complex because now you're in a group where you're in an echo chamber. And it's like with any group psychology, right? You, you repeat a certain narrative among each other and it, it takes a reality of its own. Yeah. In this case, what is being said is 
closer to truth or is more resonant with truth. So it's better than saying, oh, I'm a victim, I'm threatened, you know, I'm an insignificant human beings. And now that I feel threatened, I'm going to live my life from, you know, trying to build security and feel like everybody is attacking me. So definitely to know that I, I might be the creator or I might be the presence is, is much better. But one of the things that I've faced myself is that I felt like that I had these traumas and I felt I was inhibited. I was inhibited and there was a lack of creativity. I couldn't do the things that I felt like I should do. But people will tell me that uh, I already know what I am. So all is good, you know, and, uh, and I had a good life in a way, you know, a good job supposedly, and things were comfortable, but I did not want to just stay comfortable. I wanted to fully express and be creative. So that is one aspect. And when I, when I look at it, what I find is that the Western non-duality in a way is cherry-picked. Because if you look at the traditions where it comes from, they come with, it, it only gives a context in which the sadhana, in which the practice happens. So yeah. it sets the, the proper view for you to do your practices and more and more affirm and align them. And also not to negate the other aspect that we were talking about earlier, which is becoming. So what is the reason for this kind of cherry picking? And some of the things that I've, that I've learned in my investigation, that it has to do with colonization and invasion that happened in the past, where the invaders, the Western invaders, when they came to these countries, they tried to subjugate the, the traditions and portray them in the form of like a tourist industry, you know, because they, they were not adepts. They were not people who were practicing these traditions, but they were looking from the outside. A quick example of that is in, in the Indian continent, there was a lot of feminine practices, Shakti-based practices. And a lot of, you know, people like Carl Jung have studied them, for example, in the West, but not everybody. And these, these um, feminine worship were actually forces in the psyche or forces in the universe. And the practices that are based on these actually bring them into your experience so that you can see the play, play of creation and, and, and get, get these archetypes in your experience. But that's, that's not seen in the West at all. And even, for example, when people talk about Ramana, people don't talk about the devotional hymns that Ramana wrote about Arunachala, the mountain, right? And same about Shankaracharya. He's another apostle of Advaita Vedanta. He was also a worshiper of the Shaktis. So I think that's a, that's a collective bypass of these traditions and a continuation of masculinity and colonial thought processes that, you know, in the recent past have taken over the world. But I, I feel that there is a resurgence. I feel is a big component because they're not true being true to the very traditions. Yeah, like with yoga, we took something out of yoga, but yoga is a comprehensive path, very complex. and we. This took something out of Advaita Vedanta, which was like a whole structure, a whole architectural thing, and we take just one floor, you know, and it becomes new Advaita, it becomes a more serious problem. All I wanted to highlight was that it's, it's, a, it's much more complex than it looks like. Yeah. It's not as simple. Yeah. And I, I like to, the, the work of Scott Kinney now, who, you know, is very much aligned with this Buddhist, uh, non-dual uh, Eastern teachings, the East, the East 
that the Buddha talks about dissatisfactoriness and suffering. There's a way out of suffering. Yeah. In the West, suffering is anxiety, depression, addiction, all of this trauma. Yeah. We call it differently, but also there is science about that. I mean, there is, you can measure how it, how it affects your body and your mind. And there's the body-mind as one. So why not um, integrate the wisdom of East and West, you know, and have, I think it's very tricky, dangerous, and not skillful to have, to be a non-dual teacher or non-dual teaching, which is not trauma-informed. Because uh, satsang environment and all of that is definitely, it's going to bring up stuff. And then if I'm just have a one, what do you call it, one trick, one trick pony, like each time something comes up, it's unpleasant, netty, netty. Basically, I'm not going to netty, netty. I'm not this, not that. I'm not going to netty, netty my way out of trauma and childhood imprints. So I remember one of the dear teachers that, I, I still love and respect and can still still learn from this person. But at some point I will come to, to this person and, and uh, sharing like, you know, and I did have realization. I mean, I you know my mind is pretty quiet. I understand about what I am and all of that. And there was some relational pattern, relational pattern, relational, something that keeps happening. And I, I brought it to this person multiple times. And then this person told me, finally, is like, listen. There is nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. You are infinite being. This is what you are not. This is not real. So, and I was like, yeah, I know that I'm not that. I know there's nothing wrong with me. However, this is not helping. I have some issue that needs some other type of scalpel, you know, because this is like attachment, trauma, disruption that creates certain things. I'm not going to... Yeah, so I need to go into other stuff and face certain kind of loneliness, abandonment, this, you know, go into the mud. Yeah. And then, yeah, then this, I can really discharge that. I can, I'm really facing these things, you know, rather than face them a little bit and move away into the witnessing, you know. So I really appreciate this, the necessity to come about this awakening, transcendental being inquiring aspect of the work as well as the processing of the ego subconscious this or that to free ourselves from this so we can revert to the natural settings and be full of juice rather than like partial stunted hesitant (laughs) no i really appreciate you bringing this because um i feel like that in the west and maybe it's a global thing that in non-duality there is this elitism because it, in a way, dismisses a very rich set of teachings. Whether you look at Buddhism or you look at Sufism or you look at the Indian pantheon, you know, there's the Bhagavad Gita, there are all the yogas, there is the subtle body anatomy and non-duality just comes and it's not, it's not even apologetic. It just says, this is all bullshit. All you need to do is just go straight, hit the bullseye. You are God, and all this is like a progressive lower path. And I'm not saying that there is not truth to that, right? But all I think non-duality does is it provides a context, the truth. But in that truth we were earlier talking about, although the truth is there, so is the becoming. There is an 
another aspect of consciousness, which is to become in play. And we need the guy, all the guidance we can get to, to play the game well. Yeah. I'm still relating to this term becoming because it's associated with me with this uh, not good thing. The becoming, uh, you know, like Jean Klein, you know, the becoming, trying to attain this. But I guess you are using becoming in a different context, more like in, in embodiment and the full expression. Yeah. I'm not attached to that word, but to me it is, you know, you recognize your being, so what? I'm still here. Yeah, that's, that's, that's came with the DMT, the, the, I'm still here, yeah.